Now, uh, as you uh, are well aware of, we have been dealing with the uh, the 12 dispensations uh, through the Bible. And probably when the Bible talks about rightly dividing the word of truth, this is, this is where you start. I'd say everything about that verse of rightly dividing the word of God will rise and fall in your understanding of dispensations. Um, you know, I can't emphasize enough to you how vitally important they are. Um, and this is why I'm going through it one at a time. Uh, helping you understand uh, each section, each dispensation, but then hopefully you'll be able to bolt them all back together and see the whole span of the Bible uh, as it comes through. You know, I don't know who phrased this. I use it all the time, and it's, it's probably one of the truest statements you ever hear, but the price of learning is repetition. And the more you go through something, the, the better you understand it, and the more you learn it, and the better you know how it works for you. And that is certainly true with the Bible. That's why I never care, you know, even on Thursday night Bible study, if somebody uh, asks the same question, um, you know, that we maybe just talked about a couple of weeks before. I may handle it a little differently and, and come at it just for variety's sake. But, um, you know, it's a thing where this is how you learn your Bible, going through those same things over and over and over again. And that's why the dispensations are so important. At some point in your life, and I would hope very soon, you'll be able to just spit out the dispensations, maybe not get all the detail, but be able to put them in a logical, chronological order uh, for yourself without ever using your notes. Just know that the 12 are and, you know, and then work through it. And, uh, you know, that's why I'm going through it the way I am and, uh, you know, trying to uh, get it put together for you. Now, last time... We talked about the 400 silent years, and you know that's going to bring us up to the the first coming of Christ, which is the dispensation that we're going to talk about today. These two are probably the key dispensations from which everything in the Old Testament hangs on, and everything going forward is going to hang on. Um, these two are absolutely vital, and yet um, you know. If there's one area that Baptist preachers, Bible-believing guys, if there's one, if there's one uh, area where they're really uh, messed up in, it's it's this particular area here. Uh, and without this, you're going. You don't know where you're going, coming from, and you certainly don't know where you're going forward. And this is the this is the reason why so many Baptist pastors and churches. Uh, just don't really have a clue about the Bible. I would say that your ability to rightly divide the word of truth, and I know I told you it's based on the 12 dispensations, but this, this, these two will be the key. And last week we talked about the time that, uh, when the times of the Gentiles start. And officially it's around Second Chronicles chapter 36 uh, and uh, in, in 1 Kings 18, or 2 Kings 18. And from that point on, you know, once we get past that 70 years captivity and you get back through Ezra and Nehemiah, those are post-captivity, or those are captivity books. Then God, from that point on, after that 70 years, um, he doesn't give anything to anybody. And uh, we talked about last week how that this is the, uh, this is the, where the devil really goes to work. 
the devil understands the scriptures better than anybody outside the Godhead, obviously. And he knows about the coming of Christ. And uh, he knew that because when you get into the early gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the Roman Empire, which is in power at this point in time, uh, is out, he's using them to, to kill Christ, to stop him from, from ever becoming who God wanted him to be and doing what God wanted him to do. So you're going to find that, you know, these 400 years are absolutely, um, absolutely important. It, they're, they're part of a pattern. You'll go back to uh, the end of Genesis where e, um, Israel goes into Egypt. They're down there at 430 years. And um, during that time, what the devil is doing is he's taking the promised land that was given to Abraham and he's completely um, fortifying it against the Jews coming into that land and getting it. See, he's got 430 years. This is where the sons of God come back down again. This is where when Israel finally gets into this land there, when the spies go over, they see the giants. They see it as an incredible, um, almost impossible situation. And um, it really delays them for 40 years. It was because of their fear that God didn't allow them to go into the land. So they wander for 40 years till that whole generation dies off then we have books like Deuteronomy, which is Deutero, Duo, Second Giving, where God gives the law to them again, the new generation, and then, then they go over. But the thing that you want to see is that for 430 years, while they were down in Egypt and God was forming them into a nation, the devil was doing his work to stop them when they got out. And that is the first pattern that you see. And of course, this is exactly what we have in these 400 silent years. When the times of the Gentiles come in, it's a, as I told you last time, it is a period of time where uh, Israel ceases to be the world power and God turns that over to the Gentile nations. We see it start with Babylon, who is in power when, uh, when they go into captivity. Then it moves into Persia. This will bring us up through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther when they go back for that 70 years. Persia gets defeated by Greece, and Greece rises for the next couple hundred years as the uh, premier nation that conquers all of the known world under Alexander the Great. And then uh, they get defeated um, uh, by, the, by Rome. And then Rome, uh, as we know from Daniel chapter 2, uh, uh, Rome stays in power up through the time of Christ, up into the early first 200, 300 years of years after Christ's death, and then stays in power by a metamorphosis process where she changes from Papal Rome to uh, Papal, uh, uh, Pagan Rome to Papal Rome and becomes the Roman Catholic Church. And on both sides of it, um, she does the same thing. And she's used to the devil to stop and kill God's people. And, you know, uh, you, you, and, that's a, and that's a pattern that you want to, I know this is not people ministry, but that's a pattern you want to look at uh, when you're dealing with people. Uh, I call it the Constantine principle. I've had people that were, uh, you know, really screwed up uh, in their life uh, in the world or just whatever, and then um, they come to Christ 
and then they slingshot the other way and, you know, try to be um, just completely opposite ends on both sides. They were completely a mess over here. Now they're, com- now they're saved or they're right with God, and now they're a screwed-up mess biblically on the other side. In other words, in either place, they're not using biblical principles. They weren't using them back here. Now that they've got into this, they're not operating either by biblical principles. It's, you know, however their own mindset operates them. And that's exactly what happens in history. Um, Nothing changes with Rome. It just goes through a process of camouflaging itself because the devil knew that it couldn't survive as the pagan Roman Empire uh, and has to come out on the other side. The devil knew that with the times of the Gentiles, the world was going to get bigger. And it did. And he understood that it was okay in the Old Testament when the world was smaller to run the world through nations. Hence, you have Egypt, Babylon, Syria, all of those nations. Once the times of the Gentiles officially come in and we move through the next three or four hundred years and we get to the Roman Empire, the world has expanded. And uh, it's coming to the place now where the devil knew that it was only going to continue to expand. So he knew that there was no way that one nation could conquer and hold all of that world. This is why in 300 AD, he knew that a nation couldn't do it, but a religion could. And this is why in Europe, in all of Central and South America, you have the Roman Catholic Church set up as a church state religion. And that what the devil couldn't do through nations, he did through a religion by those nations accepting his religion as the official religion of their country. In South America, Central America, in Europe and places, uh, when you get born, you're not born, you, you, were, you were born a Catholic. You're not born uh, like you are in America that you get to choose. You were born in and certified by a church state religion which tells you what you're going to be. Now, you may get out of it later down the line, but when you get born, that's what you come into. So the devil understood that. And he also knew that just as he had to get the uh, the land of Israel fortified uh, on his behalf to stop the nation of Israel in Exodus 12 when they came out. He also knew that the first coming of Christ, which is the dispensation we're going to talk about today, he also knew that the first coming of Christ uh, was going to happen, and he had to get the, uh, the same land, the same exact land fortified to stop the first coming of Christ where he did it with many nations in the Old Testament. The times have changed to the point where now there's only one nation that is running the world, and that nation is his nation. It's going to be produce his church, going to produce his Bible, and going to produce everything that he wants it to be. He ran the nations through Baal worship in the Old Testament. So it didn't matter whether it was the Jebusites or the, uh, whoever it was, the Amorites, or it doesn't matter. They all followed, in some form or the other, the religion of Baal. But that all changed when we got past into the times of the Gentiles where the world got bigger and the nations couldn't control it. So he come up with Roman Catholicism around 300 A.D., which is nothing more than a repackaged Old Testament Baal worship. And now he knows that he's going to run the world not through countries but through a religion. That's why she is the most powerful, the richest, the most 
incredible religion on the planet, when I say incredible from the standpoint of the outreach that she has and the power that she has. She now literally rules governments through religion. And if you, when we some point again teach church history, I'll show you around 800 A.D. how that uh, Charles, Charles Le Gros uh, actually marries the state and the church together. Uh, and from that point on, uh, she is not only a religious organization, now she's a political organization. The Vatican is its own country. Uh, it has its own ambassadors to all the other nations. We have an ambassador to the Vatican. The Vatican is not, the Roman Catholic Church is not a religion per se. It is a, it is a nation that is cloaked with a religion. And through that religious nation, she can, literally runs the world and controls the world. And there's a number of good books in the library or in the bookstore there that um, will, will, will run you through that. The 400 silent years was without a doubt, for me anyhow, the most incredible point in history because so many things are defined at that point. And when somebody looks at it from a biblical standpoint, they, they see it uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an incredible way that really, you know, shows you where this whole thing is going to go. And uh, that 400 years or so, and I told you before that that 400 years is just a title that they give it. Uh, depending on how you count it, it can be a little less or a little more, but it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, the times that uh, Israel's down there is counted a couple of different ways, too. One place says there were 400, the other place there were 430. And when you go back, you find out that in one place, God is just counting the time when they go down. The other place, God is also counting the time with Abraham. So it, that's the way it works. But it, it's a 400 silent years is the, is the name that we, we give it. And it's that time when God doesn't speak. There's no revelation of God. There's no more books of the Bible. Um, God is not speaking through prophets. He's not speaking through anything but what he has already written in the Old Testament. They have in the Old Testament everything that they need to figure out when the Messiah was going to come. And of course, this is how the wise men in Daniel 2 uh, knew where to look, when to look, and when to come. All that is, all that is uh, not in Matthew 2, excuse me, all that is found in the book of Daniel. The Daniel gives you the time and the place and the date of Christ within three or four months of, of the time. So it's a thing where everybody knew what to look for. And it's during that 400 years that the devil does the same thing. He prepares the world to reject the first coming of Christ. He does it basically to, through two nations, where when Babylon goes off and Persia comes on, uh, they basically are, God uses Persia to get the Jew back to the land because the Jew has to be back in the land for Christ to come. So a remnant goes back. And that'll be covered in Ezra, Nehemiah, and, and the book of Esther. Actually, they're out of order. Um, it should be, actually, it should be the book of Esther, the book of Nehemiah, or Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. But they're not. They're Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And the reason why they're not in chronological order of the time events is because from Second Chronicles chapter 36 up to the book of Proverbs, the orders of the books of the Bible, which include Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and then Job, and then Psalms, and then 
and in Proverbs um, is, is a picture of the premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ by the order of the books in the Bible. So God chose to take it out of the chronological order and put it in a systematic theology order of the premillennial return of Christ uh, to show you that that is the biblical approach to understanding the second coming of Christ. It's incredible stuff. But during that 400 years, the devil used Persia to get him back. And then the devil took Greece and destroyed Persia and then put together all of the philosophical uh, philosophy that we have today came from the Greeks. The Greek Empire impacted the world so much that the language of the Greeks became a universal language. And there's only been three universal languages in the history of man. In the Old Testament, it was Hebrew. Uh, In the early New Testament times, it was Greek. Uh, When Christ shows up, it's a Greek-speaking world. They're still speaking Greek. Uh, The Greeks impacted the world to such a degree uh, that it, it, it just altered the in a whole world in a, in, a, in a way that is, you know, unbelievable. And so he uses Greece to bring in the pagan knowledge. And the Greek philosophers like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, you know, they are the great thinkers that bring about actually modern-day philosophy and modern-day psychology. It all goes back to those guys who they're lovingly called the big three. And, of course, it's, it, there was other ones involved with that. But the Greeks were unparalleled in their wisdom. And everybody looked at it and saw that and understood that even to this day. If you go to college someplace and you get into a fraternity, uh, your fraternity will be named after uh, Alpha Kappa Beta. It'll go back to the Greeks because the Greeks have always been associated with learning and knowledge. Unfortunately, it's learning and knowledge that sends you to Lake of Fire, but that's beside the point. And so we see that the Greek Empire uh, brought up the false teaching, and the devil used that uh, to, to, to infiltrate the whole world to counter anything that God had said, because we've got 400 years here, and all of the Jews other than that remnant, were scattered through all of the other nations. And uh, in 400 years, they have lost their own native language of Hebrew. So this is why that when Christ does show up and he's coming to the nation of Israel to give them the truth about the first coming, this is why God uses tongues. Charismatic could never get this because he's so out of touch with reality and life and that he could never get a handle on it. He thinks tongues is for the church age because he doesn't know anything about the Bible. He has no concept of history, certainly dispensations, and does not see that the reason why God had to utilize tongues is because for 400-some years, these Jews that were dispersed through all these other Gentile nations had lost their native language. And God is not going to come to them and speak to them in those languages. He's going to use the pure language of heaven, which is Hebrew. So this is why that no matter where they were, when the apostles were going to give them the truth, they had the ability to speak in that person's language. But God himself 
uh, had gave it in, in Hebrew. And, and so that's why tongues even came into, into being. And that's, that's prophesied back in the book of Isaiah to the nation of Israel, never prophesied in any way, shape, or form to the church. But there again, charismatic uh, movement is just such a demonic thing that it cares little about the truth of the Bible in relationship to their feelings. And then, of course, once the knowledge and the wisdom was set, then we find that the next nation that pops up is Rome. And Rome kind of takes everything that has been given to that point in time and repackages it into a, 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 an incredible nation. She takes the military stuff and the conquering of the world that Alexander the Great did, but she also, because the Roman army was one of the most powerful armies, and he, she even extended herself way past where Alexander went. But she also then takes the knowledge that she learns, that they got, and she brings that in, and where with the Greeks it was, uh, you know, in Greece, now it settles in Alexandria, Egypt, and, of course, this is where the great seat of knowledge exists at the time of Christ. The university or the library of Alexandria was unparalleled, and it had everything in it that they had done. And what the devil did now in the last nation that he has, he pulls together the military power, he pulls together the pagan teachings, he only lacks one thing now, and that is the establishment of his church. And that happens around 300 A.D. with Constantine. And, and when you look at Constantine, again, by every writer of history, of church history certainly, and every writer of history, every newscaster, will tell you that Constantine uh, put an end to the pagan Roman Empire and brought about Christianity to Rome. And um, by saying that, if you translate that, it simply means that he stopped the pagan Rome and started the Roman Catholic Church. And where before Rome as a pagans killed Christians, now as a church they're going to kill Christians. Hence the Constantine effect in dealing with people. People will be one way, way over on the left. They'll may come back to the middle and then go way far to the right. And there's just, in either area, there's no balance. And that is, uh, you know, it's devastating in both areas. And, of course, this is one of the great lessons of history. So Rome now is in power at the first coming of Christ. The devil has utilized everything that, that uh, was in history. And this is why I tell you over and over again, and again, the price of running is repetition, that an understanding of history is not complicated when you just eliminate all the Gentile bullcrap. The history from a Bible standpoint is God moving in this direction to do what he wants to do and the devil moving to cut him off to stop it. And this is what you see in these 400 years. God had finished the Old Testament canon. There's uh, uh, 39 books now that uh, are, are written. In that, God has given man everything that he needs to look and understand the first coming of Christ. And of course, uh, the devil was going to counter that. So he brings in the Persians, he brings in the Greeks, he brings in the Romans, and the Romans stay in power. They just switch from pagan to papal, and Rome, Rome is in power today 
um, greater than she has ever been, and she certainly still runs the world. She just runs it through a religion now. Most people can't see that. This is why today in churches like the uh, Baptists who take Baptist off their name or the knee evangelical crowd, that uh, this is why they become susceptible to accepting the devil's Bible and get so upset when somebody calls the new NIV or the ASV or the RSV or the new English, whatever, uh, the devil's Bible because they have absolutely no clue. Um, they, ha- they don't see the Roman Catholic Church as the devil's church. When Revelation chapter 17 and 18, you have to, you have to be absolutely have an IQ, slow, beloved plant life to see that, not see that. It's so clear. But because they don't know the Bible and have no real keys to the Bible to understand the Scriptures and certainly can't write it, divide it, they basically think that all churches and all religions are okay. And this is the hallmark of the Laodicean church. This is where they all got to. This is where Billy Graham got to. This is where all the neo-evangelicals have gotten to. This is where most of the Baptists have gotten to. And it's a, it's a terrible situation because it's, uh, you know, it's just exactly the way God said it was going to go. So we see that, that everything has been set up <coughs> and everything is... Uh, is therefore a, a, a reason and a purpose. And when you look at history, you only want to look for two things. God's movement, the devil's movement. Everything else is just the little parsley next to the steak that nobody ever eats. It, it doesn't mean anything. Everything else is window dressing. Everything else is a light show to get your attention off the real main. I grew up in the Cold War. And the Cold War was after World War II. By 50, we got into Korea, then we got into Vietnam, and then, you know, it was called the Cold War, Russia against the, um, the United States. And it was called the Cold War because it never developed into a hot war, like killing everybody and using bombs like World War II was. And everybody focused on that time, and here again, the devil used that. Everything, Everybody focused on Russia as the real enemy. When Russia has never been the real enemy, just like the Muslims are not the real enemy, the real enemy has always been the number one enemy of anybody in the free world, and certainly Christianity would be the Roman Catholic Church. And of course, she uses those things to hide behind it, while all the time she's fostering those things and keeping them going. And uh, so all this comes into play for the next dispensation. The next dispensation is probably the most important dispensation that you're ever going to get your hands on, and, and certainly without a doubt, the one that nobody knows anything about. And this, is, this dispensation is the reason why so many people are absolutely, completely, totally messed up on, 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 uh, on Christianity today, God and the Bible, and they have no clue. It's because they don't get the dispensations in the right format. Now, this dispensation will run from the first coming of Christ, which will be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, up to Acts chapter 7. Most people never see it that way. They see this dispensation, if they see it at all, as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts begins the church age. And they never see it as it really is because they can't, divide out the book of Acts. And I've told you this before, the three main books in your Bible that at some point you have to really grasp and understand 
inside and out, upside down, and be able to get everything out of them and lay them out as you need to would be Matthew, Acts, and then the book of Hebrews. The whole Bible hangs on those three books. And um, it's, a, it's a key because the four Gospels are going to all cover the, uh, the first coming of Christ. And then Acts, the first seven chapters, is going to take place uh, immediately after Christ goes back and then is going to end with uh, um, the, you know, the Lord actually moving into the church age, which is very easy to see. Three times in your Bible, in the early New Testament, the Jews have a chance to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Nobody ever sees this. The first time was John the Baptist. John the Baptist came clearly preaching that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. So if many, it's, it's obvious from the book of Acts, like Acts chapter 19 and other places, that many of the people rejected, or excuse me, many of the people accepted John's message and looked for the Messiah. They knew their Old Testament scriptures. They knew that he was going to be a forerunner of Christ. They're looking for him, and when he preached the message, uh, and he's baptizing them down at the River Jordan, and Christ shows up to be baptized, then uh, many of the people recognize the scriptures and the Old Testament and realize that uh, this is what it is. But as always, what God had to have turn the corner was not the common ordinary people. What he had to have turn the corner was the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, because there was the problem. And of course, they wouldn't do it. The scribes and the, excuse me, the Sadducees and the Pharisees are two groups of Jews within the Jews' religion that were never designed or, or, or made official by God. Here again, these are two religious positions that come out of the 400 silent years that nobody is ever connected with in the Bible. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were two non-biblical uh, concepts to the nation of Israel, much like Bible scholars are to the New Testament church. They're not biblically sanctioned in any way, shape, or form. And a lot of people have a tough time with that. That's because they have bought into the Roman Catholic philosophy of, of uh, uh, doctrine of the Nicolaitans, a priest class over the common man who is going to tell you what the Bible means, and they lose sight of the fact that God doesn't going to teach you the Bible through any man. He'll teach it to you through his New Testament local church to you or to you personally as you get into the Word of God and build your relationship. But there's no religious hierarchy with New Testament Bible Christianity. So we see that, you know, when John the Baptist shows up, he comes preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, of course, it is. And we know what happens to John. Uh, Rome kills him. And uh, he's taken off the scene. The second chance that they have is in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. John is born six months before Jesus is. And uh, it's a time where... Um, you know, he shows up uh, at public ministry, and John is still alive during that time. And uh, then John is killed, and then the Lord goes through uh, everything that he does to present himself as the Messiah to Israel. And we'll see that in a moment. 
And then, of course, they, they kill him. They crucify him. On the cross, the Lord cries out to his father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. God answers that prayer, and the Jews get one more chance. And that chance will be Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7. And I'm going to walk you through that and show you that here in, in a moment. Now, let's go back and, and talk about the four Gospels for a moment before we, we do that. The four Gospels are four accounts of the first coming of Christ. Each one of them will portray Christ in a different format. Most people never see this. They never study it this way. Uh, you will find that the writers each uh, do a gospel, but you could actually say, and the word gospel means good news, you could actually say that these are four different gospels from the standpoint of the good news because each one of them tell you a different good news about Christ. So technically speaking, they could be four individual Gospels, and that's why every one of them is acuted as the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. You don't see where they're just put in a four-bracket thing, the Gospels. Each one of them is, in it by its own definition of the word Gospel, which means good news, is a good news unto itself, because in Matthew you have the good news of Christ coming as the king. In Mark, you have the good news as Christ coming as a servant. In Luke, you have the good news as Christ coming as the son of man. And in, in John, you have the good news of Christ coming as the son of God. And those are four distinct aspects. Each one of them is incredible unto itself. And I know most people don't study it this way and most people don't look at it this way, but if you want a complete picture of the first summing of Christ, you have to study it from the four gospel presentations. You're going to find that in Matthew, he's portrayed as the king. And so the genealogy in Matthew will run him back through the kingly line of the kings. When he comes into Mark, He's presented as a servant. A servant is a bond slave. He does not have any lineage or any, heris, uh, any uh, heritage. So you find no genealogy in Mark because he comes as a servant. In Luke, he comes as the son of man. That'll be the human side of him. So there you find the genealogy running back through his human line through Mary. Also in Luke, you'll find uh, Luke is a doctor. He's a medical doctor. He records the actual birth of Christ. Most people know so little about the Bible that for them, the birth of Christ is a composite of Matthew 2 and Luke. And of course, this is why you find Christmas cards with him in a manger with a star over the manger and the three wise men showing up and all that stuff. And if you compare the two accounts, you would see that they're probably two or three years apart. In Luke, where he actually deals with his birth, he's in a manger. In, uh, in Matthew, where he's dealing with him as the king, he's in a house. In Luke, he's called a babe. In Matthew, he's called a young child. And, of course, failure to see these different things 
uh, will just keep you from ever figuring the Bible out because the key to the Bible is words. And Christmas doesn't help it any with all the Christmas cards and the front yard things and the decorations you buy at Home Depot of, you know, the wise men and the camels there at his crib. Even churches, you know, they'll have the live nativity scene where he's a little baby in the deal and it'll be the three of the wise men, you know, with, you know, and, and, and they just pretend like that's the way it happened. And of course, you know, that's not the way it happened. The wise men that came, uh, you're told that uh, came from the east. That would be Babylon or somewhere out that way. That is exactly where Daniel wrote the book of Daniel, and these guys are obviously using the Bible to figure out very closely the approximate time of the first coming of Christ, using the scriptures. By the same token, I can tell you that if wise men today will take the same Bible and figure out pretty close in the proximity when the second coming of Christ is going to be. That's the way it works. The star that they see, and oh my my, star of wonder, star of bright. The star that they saw, obviously, um, you know, boy, there's much to do about that. And uh, it's been, been tried to be explained away as a supernova, uh, as the conjunction between Saturn and Jupiter, all of these things. Um, obviously, if anybody paying attention, uh, the star was not seen by everybody. If it was a supernova or a conjunction or a comet, that would have been an event that everybody could have seen. Very obviously from it that the only ones who saw it was the wise men. Herod didn't see it. He was asking them what time it appeared. He, he didn't see it. Nobody saw it except the wise men. And of course, again, when you go back to Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, the Bible says, I saw a star fall from heaven, and unto him was given the key to the bottomless pit. In the Bible, stars are angels. And what you have in Matthew with the star uh, is an angel. Uh, I, I'm, I would just probably make a wild guess that it's the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But that's another time. So it's a thing where all of this in Matthew uh, is heralding him as king. And then in the other books, they present him as a servant. Luke presents him as the son of man. So as I said, the genealogy goes back there. And then Luke actually accounts the real birth in the manger in Bethlehem by a medical doctor, Luke. And then you have the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, he's portrayed as the Son of God, so his genealogy there is in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He goes back to God. Those four books are absolutely vital um, in understanding, you know, what's happening at the first coming of Christ. Each one of them are unique unto themselves. And, of course, the great criticism about the, from, the, from the Bible scholars is that uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, don't match. Uh, and, of course, my answer to that is they were never supposed to match. Each one is portraying the gospel, the good news about Christ from a different aspect. So why would you think they would match? Each one will focus on other events or add some events or leave out some events based on what they're trying to accomplish with the theme of that book. What's your problem with that? The problem is they don't see and understand the four accounts of the Gospels. Therefore, they're very limited in their understanding of how all this thing works together, and they just can't function properly with it. So at some point in your life, 
I keep adding these to you. At some point in your life, you're going to have to get down Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John along with the book of Acts, along with the book of Revelation, along with the book of Romans, uh, along with every other book in the Bible. So you can start wherever you want to start. I would suggest you start with Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews and then work it up from there. But, you know, it's a thing where uh, <clears throat> there's a reason why Matthew is the first book. If, if you want an overall synopsis of the four Gospels, of what is really happening here, it will be Matthew. Uh, the other books will focus on uh, different aspects of Christ himself and what he's doing, but it's Matthew who will give you uh, an overall picture of him coming to Israel as the king of the Jews. And that is the most important aspect. So, and I've given and told you this many, many times, Matthew, Matthew will run you through chapter by chapter every event that is going to be covered out in the four Gospels from him being the king and coming to Israel. And if, if every other, uh, the other three Gospels and also the book of Acts has to be viewed and understood in the light of Matthew because he's coming as the king first and foremost. And in chapter 1 of Matthew, you have what we know as the genealogy of the king, and I already told you that. This is where they run his lineage back through the kings of Israel as the son of David. Uh, in Matthew chapter 2, you have the birth of the king. And in Matthew chapter 2, you know, again, if you look at it, you'll find that this is uh, probably two, maybe three years after Christ is um, been born. And the wise men showing up are bringing him gifts. Those gifts are very important because they signify to us um, him as, as the Messiah to, to the nation of Israel. The first they bring him is gold. And of course, gold is, is for a king. He is the king of the Jews. Uh, the second gift is frankincense. And frankincense will represent the priesthood. He is a priest. And then, of course, the third one is myrrh, and myrrh represents him being a prophet. There's only two men in the Bible that have both, all three offices. One of them is Christ, and the other one is David. Both of them are a king, both of them are a priest, and both of them are a prophet. And this is what got Saul in trouble when he uh, offered the sacrifice, because Samuel, in his mind, was late getting there. And, of course, uh, uh, he wasn't a priest, and for that, God, God killed him. So we see that in chapter 2, he's, his birth is connected with him being the king of the Jews. In uh, chapter 3, we now see it says, In those days came John the Baptist preaching uh, in the wilderness of Judah, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And, of course, this is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 8. So everybody who knew the Old Testament prophecy knew what he was doing and knew who he was. Hence, the common, ordinary people who were still believing the Bible got him. It was the scribes and the Pharisees in the Roman Empire that didn't want to hear it. And then, of course, we know that they, they, he killed John. In chapter 4, we have Christ being, uh, being the, what we call the preparation of the king. 
And this is where the devil comes to him and he tempts him uh, in, uh, in three different aspects. And it's a thing where when he comes to him, uh, he, uh, he tries to get him to do three things. And the amazing thing is here is that all three of these things are things that he will do at the second coming. And there's a great study and lesson in that we don't have time to get into today. And so we see that, that in this chapter he fulfills the verse that says he was tempted on all points like we are, yet without sin. And this is where he goes through his temptation. In chapter 5, 6 and 7 in the book of Matthew, you now have what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, really what you have here, uh, and this is where the liberal likes to go because he likes to pretend that, you know, this is where all the do-gooders hang out. But in reality, uh, this is dealing with the constitution of the kingdom of heaven, the structure, how it's going to operate. Like we have a, a constitution, we have a Declaration of Independence, but we, we have a constitution which is the formal document which our government abides by. This was their constitution. This is how the millennial reign was going to function. So you see that in, in chapter 5, 6, and 7. In chapters 8 and 9, this is where you begin to see him do his healing. And again, a charismatic <coughs> could never get to this. The healing goes back to Exodus chapter 4 with what God told the Jews and Moses when Moses was turned into, his hand was turned leprous, that it was the sign that God was going to use with the nation of Israel. Every Jew knew that. Unfortunately, the charismatics don't, but every Jew knew that. And so when he shows up in 8 and 9 and he starts healing people, they immediately equate it with Exodus chapter 4 and understand that this is proof that he is who he says he is. Again, scribes and the Pharisees didn't want anything to do with it, but the common people did. In chapter 10, you'll find that he calls his 12 disciples and he sends them out to, uh, to preach. And uh, uh, this is where you see the, um, the kingdom being preached by the 12 apostles. And notice, they're very clearly told not to go to the Gentiles, not to go to the house of Israel. People can't read sometimes. And so the chapter 11, 12, and 13 will be a three-chapter little thing here that shows how they reject him, why they reject him, the manner of rejecting him. And again, this is where the <clears throat> stupid charismatic picks up the unpardonable sin and tries to put it into the church <clears throat> because he has no ability to rightly divide the word of truth and so he's lost in the shuffle so to speak and uh, then in chapter 13 through chapter 25 now there's a lot of material in there but we don't <clears throat> this is where you find the <clears throat> kingdom going now into parables and the parables were the truth about the coming Messiah and the nation of Israel going into a mystery form because of the nation of Israel's rejection in chapter, uh, um, uh, chapter 11, 12, and 13. So now we have the parables. <clears throat> and again, the liberals, 
are forever trying to get the spiritual, put them into the church. I'm not going to tell you that there isn't some spiritual principles in the parable. Most certainly there are. But you try to follow the parables letter by letter, word by word, uh, all the way down through them, and you're going to got a Christian dying or going to hell. It's just that simple. And of course, you can't do that. There's some things in it that you can apply. We know the rule we follow. And there's many things you can apply. So then we come into chapter 26. In chapter 26, we have um, three main situations here. We have the Passover. We have the uh, agony in the garden. And then have we his betrayal by Judas. In chapter 27, we have the uh, time before Pilate and all of that winds up being the crucifixion. And in chapter 28, we have the resurrection. Now, if you were to take your Bible, and remember now, the theme of the first coming of Christ is the coming king with the coming kingdom to the nation of Israel. So let's forsake for a moment that we know that the other three Gospels, servant, son, and son of God, let's take them, off the, take them out of your Bible for a moment. And let's pretend that in our Bible all we have is Matthew and then Acts, Okay that'll make things easier for you in understanding it. Anyhow, I'm not suggesting that we throw out those three books, but for the sake of understanding what I'm doing here, just just put them aside for a moment. So in Matthew chapter 28, Christ comes out of the tomb. Now let's turn over to Acts chapter 1. We're just going to skip right over Mark, Luke, and John for a moment here. Now, Acts chapter 1 takes place immediately after the resurrection. And uh, Christ is on the earth for a number of days, and then he goes back to heaven. So, Acts chapter 1 picks up at the end of Matthew. And let's let's just pretend for a minute that Mark, Luke, and John don't figure into this. And so, it starts out by saying this, the former treaty have I made the O Theophilus of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Now the thesis he's talking about here is his own book of Luke. Luke writes Acts, he also wrote the Gospel of Luke, so that's what he's talking about. Until the day in which he was taken up after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he had showed himself alive after his passion of many infallible proofs being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, uh, ye have heard of me. Now, verse 4 is very key. Let me tell you how this is taught first in every sphere of circle of Christianity. Uh, I, I probably know of five Baptist churches in the country who teach this the right way. Uh, I don't know of a Bible college. I know some Bible institutes, but I don't know of a Bible college that teaches it the right way. I don't know anybody that teaches it the right way. Here's what they do. They begin to take that 
After the crucifixion, the New Testament now comes right into effect. And they fail to see anything connected now again with the nation of Israel. And I honestly, I don't get that. I I don't even know how, uh, I don't even know how anybody could actually read the first seven chapters of the book of Acts and, and, and not pick it up. I mean, I just don't get it. But here's what throws them. There's a couple of other things that throw them here. Come over to uh, verse 47 of chapter 2. And in verse 47 it says, Praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now once they read that word church, and there's there's another place in here too, once they read that word church, they they just lose all control of their bowels. I mean, it's over. I mean, it's gone. They 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 never get back. Uh, I mean, it's just done. They now believe that this church is our church, and it's because of another fundamental breakdown in their ability to understand that there's different churches in the Bible. But again. One of the major fundamental errors of the Bible is to approach the Bible from a Christian standpoint. I've told you that many, many times. Because Christianity is such a small part of the overall Bible, but you have a tendency to read your Christianity into everything that God's doing. Hence, we get into Acts. We see the word church. We just know for sure that it has to be the church of us. And yet, and and here's what I don't get, honestly. I, I mean, maybe it's just me. 47, look at 46, don't read it, look at 45, look at 44, look at 43, look at 42. Just one, two, three, four verses before you get to the church verse. Look at verse 42. And they continued in the apostles' doctrine. What is the apostles' doctrine? It's Matthew chapter 10. How could this be the church when Paul hasn't even shown up yet? This is not the New Testament local church. This is the Jewish church that is in this time period of this dispensation before we get into the next dispensation, which is the dispensation of our church age. And it, it just, it, 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 it never ceases to amaze me. And I know people sometimes, they think, I don't know about me, they think, well, you know what? Why are you so rabid on, on guys like this? Why do you say that the things that you say that are so cutting. And I'll, I'll be answered with you, because they're so stupid. I mean, how can you miss these things? And I don't care if you're stupid and you miss them. What I care about is you getting into your pulpit and teaching your people these things, because now you've just manifested your stupidity a hundredfold. And if the truth is truth, and the book of Acts is, you know, is, is a crucial book, And he talks about here, as you come down, look at this. Let's pick it up in verse, uh, uh, let's go on here, Uh, verse 4. And and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, uh, ye have heard of me. Now, they are told to stay at Jerusalem. They are not told to go out and build churches. Paul does that. How do you miss the fact that they are told to stay at Jerusalem? 
and told to wait for the promise that God told them about. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. That verse right there can go two ways. It can go to the millennium, or it can go to the church age. Because in the next chapter, the Holy Spirit of God is going to come. Nobody knows why it's come. The Jews, I'm going to show it to you in a minute, they're still thinking that it's dealing with the nation of Israel, and it could be. But in God's mind, if they don't accept him, it can move right on into the church age, and the Holy Spirit of God will do the work in the church, just like he'd have done the work in the millennium. But nobody knows that. Now watch. Verse 6, when they, therefore, were come together. Now, the charismatic or the most Baptist would have you to believe that that's everybody in Christianity. Yeah, they, had a, they rented a big hall downtown, you know, Bartle Hall. Now they're having a meeting and Jesus showed up. And they, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to who? Israel. Nothing about the church here. Not a thing. They're not asking, oh, now, should we go out and put Baptist on our name now? They're not asking that. They're wanting to know if the kingdom is going to now yet still be given to Israel. Now, what could his answer? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. Times and the seasons are the second coming of Christ when he would come back and establish that kingdom. And he's saying, that is on a need-to-know basis, and you don't need to know right now. And he don't answer them. So what do they do? They think that probably it is, or they're not going to take any chances anyhow. And so what they do is they, he goes back up to heaven, verses 9, 10, and 11, and <coughs> they're, uh, they, they, they get scrambling around, and they say, hey, over here, verse 20, uh, let's see here, and uh, verse 20 of chapter 1. Uh, verse 19, and when it was known unto all the dwellers of Jerusalem, in as so much as that is field called in their proper tongue, uh, Aklandema, that is to say the field of blood, for it is written in the book of Psalms, Psalm 109, Psalm 69, uh, let his habitation be desolate, talking about Judas, uh, and let no man dwell therein, and let his bishopric, uh, that's his office as, as an apostle, uh, let another take. Wherefore, of these men, which have com companioned with us uh, all the time with the Lord, went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, and on the same day that he was taken up, must be one ordained to be a witness of us uh, in the resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph and Barnabas, and which was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, and they said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether these men too should be chosen." Uh, and that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lot, and their lot fell upon Matthias. Now, here's where they replace Judas, who was fallen, with Matthias. Now, the Baptist preacher, every Bible seminary college in the country, 
certainly all the neo-evangelical clowns, will now tell you that this is where the apostles got out of fellowship with God and made a mistake. They'll tell you that they never should have done this and never should have put Matthias in because the apostle that was going to take Judas's place was Paul. See how it works? And of course, nothing could be farther from the truth than your heresy is paramount and star-studded. <laughs> Matthew, these guys are operating, remember their question, are they going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Paul had nothing to do with the kingdom of Israel. He had his kingdom of God to the church. These guys, when Christ doesn't give them a direct answer, they get in a huddle and say, well, boys, he didn't tell us what he's going to do. We need to cover our bases because we know the Bible says, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, that we're going to be on 12 thrones judging Israel when he comes back. We only got 11. We got to get another guy. And so they're doing exactly what they should do based on the kingdom that they're looking for it to come. The, the pastor, Baptist preacher, the pastor, whoever, who is totally out of touch with the Bible, he's totally off his rocker when he says that they should have waited for Paul, that they're out of fellowship. They are following the light of the Old Testament scriptures concerning the question they ask that the pastor today has no clue about. And they're absolutely correct in doing what they are doing. Now they have 12 because they are expecting the Lord to come back. And Here's the next thing you see here, and this is, this is quite incredible. Chapter 1, verse 15. If you don't have these marked in your Bible, mark them, uh, put a circle around the, the verse 15, and then put a little circle in red out to the side and just write in it, message number one. Because in the book of Acts, Paul preaches a number of sermons to the nation of Israel. And every one of them is about them getting the kingdom of heaven back. He's not preaching to one Gentile. Peter is the apostle to the Jews. He has nothing to do with the Gentiles. And in chapter 1, verse 15 is his first message. In chapter 2, verse 14 is his second message. In chapter uh, 3, verse uh, uh, 12 is his third message. And then over here in chapter uh, 4, verse uh, uh, 19 is his fourth message. And then over here in chapter uh, chapter 5, verses 29 is his fifth message. And then over here in chapter 7 is the last message, and Peter doesn't preach that when Stephen does. But six messages are preached to the nation of Israel. Now, I want you to see this. Come back to chapter 2. And if you don't have these marked in your Bible, then... Get it. Mark them while we're here. Chapter 2, verse 5. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews. Mark that in a red circle. If you've got a red china marker, don't use a regular pen or it'll bleed through. Uh, in chapter uh, 2, verse 14, uh, all ye that dwell at Jerusalem. Over here in verse 22, the same chapter, ye men of Israel. Down here in verse 29, men and brethren. Over here, uh, over here in chapter 2, down around verse 36, uh, God hath made uh, 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 let the, all the house of Israel. There it is again. Uh, over here in chapter, 
Oh, let's see here. Oh, I think that is all the direct references there. I don't see any more, but it's clearly showing you that this is all to the nation of Israel. Six messages are preached. Peter preaches five of them. And then the last one is preached by Stephen. And when Stephen gets up to preach, again, look at his message. It's all connected to the nation of Israel. And he goes on and on and on and on and on. He, he does here. He, uh, he recaps all of Israel's history. And he brings them up to a point where they are at now. And he puts it right to them that they have crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, that God has given them as their Messiah. Peter did the same thing. I didn't go through them all today. You ought to go through those messages and outline them as far as highlighting the high points. But in chapter 7, he just really, really nails them. Look at verse 43. Ye took up the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your God, Rephidim. Now, there is the so-called star of David that you find the Jews today, the six-pointed star. Uh, It has nothing to do with David, never had anything to do with David, never will have anything to do with David. That is another Jewish fabrication based on the false gods that they had, in this case, the god of Repham. And it had nothing to do with the Jews uh, from a Bible standpoint. So he's nailing them all the way down the line. And he keeps bringing them back. And he says, verse 53, well, let's pick it up in verse 52. Which of the prophets have you not your fathers persecuted? And they did. And ye have slain them and shown before the coming of the just one, whom ye have now been betrayers and murderers. That's a pretty rough message. He's saying not only did you kill the prophets, but you killed the Messiah that God sent you who have received the law and the dispensation by angels and not kept it. Now, that's a key verse. You need to mark that. We don't have time to get into it today, but I put that in red if you have one. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. I guess they were. And they gnashed on him with their teeth, getting ready to church the preacher. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now, that is one of the key places in the Bible you want to mark. When he looks up and sees heaven opened, and when you find the word heaven opened in the Bible, it's always going to be a reference to either the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ. And here, the second coming. And he sees Jesus standing. But we are told a little bit later on that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, but now here he's standing. And I must pause here because he gets killed as a martyr. He goes home to be with heaven. And again, your Baptist preachers, your neo-evangelical guys, I'm sure, uh, 99.999% of the idiots out there in the pulpits today are going to tell you that the reason why Stephen is standing, or Christ is standing, is because he's going to welcome that martyr home. And that is a blatant, complete, total <clears throat> misunderstanding of everything in this first seven chapters. He didn't welcome anybody home. This is the third and final chance that Israel gets to get the kingdom of heaven. And he's standing up because if they would have accepted the message of Stephen's preaching, he would have come back right then and the millennium would went into effect. Now, a lot of things that we don't know how it would have worked out because it didn't happen, 
but uh, it, God would have had a way to work it all out. And I don't profess to understand it all. Nobody does. I can just tell you that this is what you do have. And uh, he says in verse 56, and, and, and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Uh, and then they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with their one accord and they cast him out of the city, stoned him, and the witness laid down their coat to the young man's feet named Saul. Thus later the apostle Paul, he sees his death. And the stone Stephen, a calling upon the name of the Lord, received my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to the charge. And he laid down, he fell asleep. So clearly showing you that the first seven chapters of the book of Acts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to Acts 7 is this sixth dispensation. Is it a dispensation given to the nation of Israel to receive the kingdom at the first coming of Christ? And they reject it. But God gives them three chances, and you have to see those three chances and understand it to put it into context. John the Baptist, Christ himself, and now, and now Stephen. And of course... Here's what they fail to see. And again, I, 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 I don't know how you read the Bible without seeing these things. There is such an absolute change from Acts chapter 7 to Acts chapter 8 that you have to be a Ph.D. to miss it. I mean, if you want an outline of the book of Acts, here's what you got. You got 28 chapters. It splits into three sections. The first section is Acts chapter 1 through 7, and then you got a split. The second section will be Acts chapter uh, 8 through Acts chapter 20, and then you got a split. And then the rest of the book will be 21 through 28. And that's how you divide up the book in a natural way. Because from Acts chapter 8, everything is done. God is done with the Jew. He's not going to touch the Jew again until... The latter part of the 1800s when he begins the regathering, which comes about in 1948. But for the next 1800 years or so, there is nothing to the Jew. That Jew lives now and dies by the two things that they said when he was on the cross. Let his blood be upon us and our people, and we have no king but Caesar. And now God holds them to that for the next 1,800 years. It is blood, sweat, and tears for the Jew. It is the Roman Empire. It is Hadrian. It is Titus. It is, it is all down through the, the Middle Ages. It's the Catholic Church. It's Adolf Hitler. It's Treblinka. It's Sobibor. It's Auschwitz. It's Dachau. It's, it's absolutely everything till God begins to bring them back, which he did. And we are living in that time right now. But how you can miss, when you start Acts chapter 8, how you can miss that now suddenly a revival breaks out in Samaria, which the Jew was told not to go to in Matthew chapter 10. If that wasn't enough, forget Samaria. We got a full-blown Gentile, the Ethiopian eunuch, in the middle of the chapter. That is totally against everything in Matthew 10. And then in chapter 9, guess what happens? Saul gets saved, who becomes Paul. Now his conversion is recorded. Paul drops off the scene for a couple of chapters, uh, that a time period of about 10, 12, 13, 14 years when he's in Arabia and when God has given him the gospel that he's going to have. And then we come back in Acts chapter 11, and uh, Peter's getting up there and he's talking and preaching, 
But as we move on through that thing, we come into Antioch, and uh, now we have the first called Christians at Antioch. And then Paul comes back on the scene, and Acts chapter 12 through the rest of the, up to chapter 20, he's doing his missionary work, and everything is transitioning away from, there isn't one miracle done in Jerusalem after Acts chapter 7. God leaves Jerusalem, he goes on an eastward course with the Holy Spirit of God, gets Paul saved, begins to bring the Gentiles in, and establishes the church age after the final rejection in Acts chapter 7. And that's where you're at. The greatest dispensation that pulls all the dispensations before it together and all the dispensations after it together is this dispensation between the first coming of Christ and Acts chapter 7. You don't get those that this one down, and uh, you'll never get it put together on either side of it. This is absolutely the most crucial one, and for the life of me, I have never understood why Baptist preachers cannot see that. Other than the one, and I've I've got friends who were who were who are good friends of mine who uh, uh, who some of them have preached in this church over the years who don't believe that and can't see that. And they'll listen to some of our tapes, you know, on the thing. And then when they come into town, you know, he'll ask me about it. Jim Lake was right on money with it. He'll ask me about it, you know, and, and we'll talk about it. And, and it, I, I come to one conclusion. They've been in the ministry longer than I have, some of them. Uh, they've been from church to church to church, been pastoring for years, and yet they don't have a clue how the Bible goes together. They know some things about the Bible. They can preach great sermons. But if you put them down and told them to take the 11, 12 dispensations and bolt them together, they'd never be able to do it. And that is so absolutely the way it is today. They're all that way. You'll find one in a, one in a thousand maybe who understands it, but the majority of them will not. They are absolutely, completely lost, and they don't see, they do not see the dispensation between Acts 1 or Matthew 1 and Acts chapter 7 and what God is doing with that. They just don't have a clue or have a handle on, 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 on how he's handling what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a mic, so you're going to have to yell. Uh, Sam mentioned to me Isaiah 3.13. Isaiah what? 3.13. Isaiah 3.13. Yeah, Isaiah 3.13, the Lord standeth up to plead and standeth to judge his people. Now, that's, that is God in the Old Testament doing that, but it's also a reference to Acts where he was standing up to, to either judge his people or come back to his people. And, of course, he winds up judging them. And uh, it's a thing where that is only particularly to the nation of Israel. If Jesus was standing up to welcome that martyr, uh, bottom line is, he would be, he's no respecter of persons. He'd have to do that with everybody. He'd be standing up and down a thousand times a day, a thousand times a minute. So this dispensation is absolutely crucial that you get. 
it will put the whole Bible together for you, and without it, you will just be like everybody else out there. You won't figure it out. It is absolutely, it's the one that you really need to understand how this thing works. And like I said, you just take Luke, uh, uh, Mark, Luke, and John out of it, put Matthew and Acts together, and watch the flow of it. That's what you have. And then you come back and put the other three books in, which deal with a different subject, and then you have the whole concept. And um, so that's where you're at. Well, we'll hold up with that today.